we'll begin. We're, our discussion uh, this evening, so I believe it's October 22nd, 2015, the discussion is of Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy. Uh, I'll begin by saying a few things, and then we'll just have questions and, and uh, chat. Not so, and both about the book and about more importantly about the issues that uh, are raised. <clears throat> it's a, this book is very important to us at, at our Fleming Foundation because we have taken Boethius, who is a saint, by the way, in the, in the, in the uh, Western Church. I don't know about in the or, in Orthodoxy, but he's a saint. Hmm. Whose uh, feast day is when? Uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah, any day now, yeah. So this seemed very, uh, uh, very appropriate book uh, to pick. He is also he is I think the model for those of us who are trying to lead sane and decent lives in a world that's falling apart. Uh, I'm not going to go over the whole story of his life. He was a uh, he was a wealthy. Uh, Roman of the highest social class had a superb education. His uh, his father died, and he was raised by uh, a member of the Simicus family, which had been most famous for their uh, unapologetic defense of paganism until a hundred years earlier. And uh, it was a Simicus who clashed with Saint Ambrose over restoring the altar of victory in the Roman Senate. Obviously, by now, they had uh, become Christian, and he married, in fact, his, uh, his uh, guardian, uh, uh, his guardian's daughter. So there was a very close relationship between him and his uh, father-in-law. He had a brilliant career the, uh, of, uh, in uh, the Roman bureaucracy, even though this was after the fall of, of the Western Empire to the Germans. Theodoric, the Ostrogoth, was the king of Gothic Italy. He wasn't really the king of Italy, he was the king of the Goths in Italy, but he had an official position as a kind of deputy to the Roman Emperor. The Emperor gave him, uh, you know, had, had given him a mandate to uh, to uh, to rule, uh, Theodoric was a a noble, an inspiring man, but you know, like uh, he's like one of those chimpanzees. They're cute when they're young, and then when they get a little old, they rip your face off. And he got uh, more because civilized people age, uncivilized people age quickly. They get sullen and they get angry. And Theodoric felt that uh, these patrician upper-class Romans were beginning to turn to the Eastern Empire, em Emperor Constantinople. So uh, anyway, uh, you know, Boethius rose to the top of the tree. He held every office possible. His, uh, his sons were made consuls on the same day. I mean, no one in the previous 150 years had enjoyed such success. But then, uh, at the height of his power and popularity, there was a treason trial, and Boethius defended the alleged traitor, saying, if he's guilty, we're all guilty, I'm guilty. And Theodoric took him at his word and arrested him, 
and put him in jail in Pavia. Now, frankly, I wouldn't mind being in, to these days in jail in Pavia. It's a charming medieval town uh, across, uh, uh, not far from Milan, and a lovely place to spend time. It's, of course, the Certosa of Pavia is just outside the, the, the charter house, uh, just outside the town. But, and he was, you know, it was like being in the Tower of London. And, uh, of course, at the end of this period of imprisonment, he was dragged out for a very brief trial. And then, at least according to one story, which is fairly uh, authoritative, they wrapped ropes around his head and twisted them until his brains popped out. It was, a, it was the cruelest imaginable kind of execution, based on no formal legal procedures, nothing. It was just, you know, ju judicial murder. While facing this, knowing what was coming, he, he wrote this book on the consolation of philosophy. He had written, he had written uh, earlier works, many, uh, his project was an interesting. His idea was that um, knowing that the world was falling apart, he was going to translate the essential philosophical works from Greek and comment on them so that they would be preserved and would enter the Latin tradition. So especially works of Aristotle, uh, you know, the logical works which he thought were essential for any kind of a successful thinking. And he um, also wanted to reconcile Plato and Aristotle to show that while they may disagree on this or that fairly minor point, that essentially we have one unified great philosophical tradition, and that's what should dominate Christianity. He wrote, uh, he did write purely theological tractates, like his, he wrote a tractate on the Trinity, and these were very, uh, Again, the logical works, theological works, very influential, but of course this book on the Consolation of Philosophy, perhaps the most influential book written in a 1500-year period. There's nothing like it. If you just name some of the people who translated it, Jean Demain, the great uh, French poet, the author of the, Ro the, Ro the Roman de la Rose, Geoffrey Chaucer, King Alfred the Great, Queen Elizabeth. I mean, you're talking this, 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 because this book was the an intelligent person for a thousand years. This is what he knew of philosophy. Not not a technical scholar, but this was the book that he knew. It taught medieval man how to think and how to think creatively. And it was the the, the, the there's there, we don't have a book like this today in the sense that there's no one, this is the one book everybody has to read. So, uh, just follow this introduction with just a few words on what the book is. The book is a dialogue, a kind of Platonic dialogue, not nowhere near as entertaining as a Platonic dialogue, but it's a dialogue. Boethius is wailing and moaning, he knows, you know, he's a virtuous, hard-working, decent person, and now this happens. How, this little, the world's unfair. How, how, how is this right that this should happen to me? And Lady Philosophy, whom he should recognize, having been a student of hers all these years, she appears to have been, you know, basically, what are you moaning about? You know, you, what, what didn't you understand before? 
all these gifts of fortune you had, they were given to you on a silver platter. Well, the nice thing about fortune is, by definition, she is fickle. What she gives you, she takes away. And so you have nothing to complain about. Well, this is a partial answer. And so the, uh, the, the, the next big subject to take up is, well, what, if, what, if I'm miserable, why am I miserable? And what, I should be happy, and what, and what is happiness? And happiness, beatitude, beatitude, a state of blessedness, is what all human beings aim for. And the, the, even the evil, the wicked, the unvirtuous, what they want is happiness. They just don't understand happiness, and they don't know how to get it. You because you are a philosopher, you have happiness, and you should be you know, you should obviously be content with this sublime happiness that you're able to achieve because no one but those who lead virtuous lives will properly pursue this goal of happiness. So this occupies much of uh, book three, especially books two and three, and, uh, and uh, with some discussion of the wicked people are basically stupid because they don't understand the nature of happiness, they think they want to be happy, but by their actions they make themselves miserable. And in fact, the only time that wicked people are beginning to be happy is when they're punished for their wickedness, which is something of a... So, you know, I was saying earlier, if, if Mrs. Clinton gets locked in jail and beaten every day, then she'll begin to be happy. But until then, no. <clears throat> so finally, uh, the, the, different, the most difficult part of the book is the last book, book five which is uh, where Boethius ratchets it up and becomes a professional philosopher. Because, and we'll, get, we'll take up all these things in, in, through questions and discussion in a minute, but essentially he has, uh, philosophy has tried to establish for him, you know, what is the nature of happiness, there's a just order, people, you know, you, you, people are rewarded or punished for the way they live, and uh, then the question begins to be, well, but how can, you, how can you reward or punish people if God, through the laws of necessity, controls everything? If God knows from the beginning what you're going to do uh, exactly, he knows everything in advance, then how is it you have any free will? Well, you know, this is the question that uh, a uh, Jean Chauvin was going, Calvin was going to make, you know, a thousand years later, and uh, it is not a trivial question. Calvin was a brilliant person. I think he came up with exactly the wrong answer that Boethius <laughs> is here uh, attacking, but it does not detract from his uh, his genius. This is not a question that is that is easy. And so this gives us the most difficult part of the book because philosophy has to bring Boethius to understanding that the uh, that there are two truths, basic truths that you have to accept. One is that God has all knowledge and all power, because that's basically if you're a Platonist, that's the definition. On the other hand. 
if we we must have free will because if we don't, life has no meaning. Why bother to pray? Why bother to be virtuous? Why why punish criminals? It's not their fault. Which is essentially the position taken by the left today in Europe and America. This poor person was raised. In, in the ghetto, or this poor person was ruined by indulgent, wealthy parents. What, whatever it is, we all have a, you know, a get out of the gas house, a gas chamber card, free, you know. We, 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 uh, none of us is responsible. And since both of those, you have to accept, are, are false positions, therefore, how can we reconcile, how can we find a way of saying, yes, God has all power and all knowledge on the one hand, and on the other, we are, fr we are perfectly free to make decisions and be held responsible for them. So, having uh, given that brief and trivializing introduction, let's, uh, where do we begin? Want to start with the early arguments or just want yes, to start anyway? Yes, the early arguments. Okay. Who would like to raise a question? I'd, I'd like a, <clears throat> would you comment on the, uh, the literary, literary device of, of um, personifying uh, philosophy and, and even some of the other emotions, the, the way the, the poetry talks about them, talks about them as people. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, lust and... Yeah. Well, that's enough. But <laughs> uh, why <clears throat> is this something that we see more in uh, pre-Christian authors? Yes. Is it a device that that the early philosophers used? Well, what we have here is a very uh, unusual book. First of all, in form, it what the ancients called a Menippean satire. Menippus wrote was a, a Greek writer who wrote. Uh, satiric works. They weren't true satire, because satire is purely a Roman form. Uh, but, uh, but they're satiric works with narrative material and written in prose and poetry. Okay, so this was, you get it in a, in, in a variety of ancient writers. Who will, it's, it's just one of those things. It's like science fiction. A lot of people will do one science fiction book in their career. Hmm. And so this, so the, the external form is quite interesting. It has led some scholars, well, scholars, it has led some unstable minds to say, well, if it's written in the form of a Menippean satire, then philosophy has to be a chump, and we're supposed to laugh at her. Um, no. About, you know, this is what happens when you go to graduate school today. No. He took the form, he did not, he had obviously a, a higher purpose. The personification of uh, virtues and abstractions was fairly popular, uh, not so much in the early classical world, but as in the Hellenistic world. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that goes on over and over. So that, that would not have disturbed anybody, and it, it lasted in the Middle Ages, and... Uh, you get this stuff in the Renaissance too, whether it's, you know, philosophy or beauty or you know, it's a, it can be done a little more subtly. In other words, you can use you can use a character with a real name, but but often the virtues will appear as as characters, and of course in art they were 
Uh, you'll have the graces, the muses, philosophy, humility. There'll be, be statues of this, and it, it, it's sort of the same thing. The other aspect, literary aspect of the book is that it is written in the form of a dialogue. Now, you know, the first substantial works of philosophy that we have, uh, many great length, are, are Plato's dialogues, and the, uh, the dialogue has always been a, uh, a form embraced ever since then by some philosophers. Cicero wrote philosophical and rhetorical dialogues. Aristotle wrote dialogues, they're all, they've all disappeared, but, but apparently they were quite beautifully written, unlike the surviving works of Aristotle that we have. So, uh, you, you know, um, Bishop Barclay wrote, Hume, Hume wrote his dialogues on natural religion. So it's a, it's a form, it's a form that goes on. The great thing about the dialogue is that you get to have give and take, you know. And if you're brilliant like Plato, you pit people who are 60% right against people who are 40% right, and, and, the, and, there's a, and, and you have a dramatic theme and you characterize, these people are brilliantly uh, portrayed. Uh, almost no writer of philosophical dialogues has been successful like that, Shakespeare. They're not, they're, not, they're not very much. Cicero is the nearest thing, that is, his characters sometimes seem almost real. But, uh, but so you take the form of the dialogue, you, you merge it with the Menopean satire, and you have, this, you have this sort of dramatic work. You could almost stage it. You know, yes? I was surprised to see these little bursts of poetry. Yes. And I do not know where this sort of prose and poetry comes from. Well, that is Menopean satire. Okay. And you get it in uh, you get you, you get it in a in a variety of Greek and Roman writers of uh, of a later uh, you know in the, in the Hellenistic and Roman period. So it is um, today when poetry is the part in a book you skip. Yes, is, you know. <laughs> We might think it's relatively unsuccessful. Interestingly, now here's something I don't have the answer to. The poem seemed to me artfully and skillfully and correctly composed. They're written in a variety of different meters. He's more influenced, say, by Horace than he is by just, say, Lucretius, who has just line, every line is dactylic hexameter. These are, these are different sort of metrical forms. I, I I can't speak authoritatively, but but they seem to me to be among the last competently constructed verse in uh, in Latin for a thousand years. But I haven't read I haven't studied them carefully though. My edition doesn't even show it as quote oh. poetry. Oh, does yeah. yours? Yes. Well, yeah, I Is mean, it isolated and, and yes. Yeah. For example, take uh, let's take the uh, like book one. Book one. Oh, book one begins uh, the consolation of philosophy, and it begins with a poem. Carmine quid quam dam studio florenti paregi, flabilis ben maestos cogor. Uh, so, th this is uh, elegiac couplets. He does, 
And so all throughout the book, where you can you can't flip through without you see without finding right. passage after passage of poetry. Mm-hmm. This just isn't even yeah. set up. Yeah, that, that um, obviously, if you just want the matter of it, that that's fine. But the fact is that this is a literary composition. Mm-hmm. This will powerfully influence all the medieval literature. There's nobody who was literate who hadn't read this uh, many times. Um, something you didn't didn't mention, I'm sure you know though, is that it, his complaint against um, unfair charges mm-hmm. don't come so much from uh, Theodoric. Yeah. As they do from courtiers, yes, or people that were influential. That's right, and those are all Romans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see, so he is particularly ticked. It's one thing for these savage Germans. No, uh, no offense to any Germans present, John, but uh, <laughs> when the rest of us aren't German, although although Gail was, you you could have been a German citizen. You were born a German. I was just born there. Yes, I know, but. You know, I often feel you, but you've, you've uh, inherited some authoritarian uh, biases from... I think there are other explanations. From being born in V-spot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the fact that your father was a career military officer might just have had my, my something yes. to do with it. But, um, yeah, so, and also, it's possible, maybe he felt that if he put an explicit attack on uh, Theodoric and the Germans... That he'd you know, make things worse for himself, and maybe the book would be burned. It's also possible that they're irrelevant. They're stupid people, stupid, brutish, boring people. Whereas what's what's disappointing is not so much when your enemies attack you. You understand that, but when your 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 flunkies, your employees, your, your colleagues, your, your so-called friends, yes. when they prove their unworthy of the uh, friendship that you, and, and the kindness that you showed them. This is very, this could be very deeply disturbing to people. And uh, we're, the next book I want to read for Thanksgiving will be uh, Sophocles' play The Oedipus at Colonus, a bitter old man complaining about how he's betray, been betrayed by the people that he uh, was kind to and, and that, sh- that owed him respect. So there's, a, there's an element of that here uh, in this, but yes, it's the Romans who are at fault, but not the, in his view, because they toadied to this dictator, which is what he was. He, you know, but a dictator who at least had the brains to realize that the Romans were the people to have in his yeah, and his yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, because right. you couldn't poor Theodore. Imagine, imagine. Well, set aside Theodoric's weaknesses. He couldn't read and he didn't want to because he felt that if, he, if the Germans started reading, they would no longer be German. They'd no longer rule the world. Weaken it. Yeah, they would weaken yes. it. I've, I've met rednecks like this in the South. I don't mind. You, you may have book learning, but uh, you need, you need, you need uh, common sense, not book sense, to get along in this world. So I, I know that I know the, anybody who's run a private school in the South knows, knows, uh, knows that problem. But uh, so Theodoric thought he created he created a parallel uh, uh, a structure of authority. On the one hand, there were the Germans who who staffed and ran the military. 
Uh, and on the other, the Romans, and, uh, and some of them were actually came, came to him from Constantinople. But in Constantinople in those days, they were still speaking Latin, not Greek. Even in the age of Justinian, you know, the law, the legal code, which, which is like 50 years later, the legal code is written in Greek, not in Latin, not Greek. So uh, it took a while. I mean, Constantinople was bilingual then. And, uh, you know, I often wonder about uh, Gregory the Great because he went to Constantinople about 485, you know, late, late, to, no, I'm sorry, 585, late 6th century. But he, he clearly had to speak Greek, but he always said in his later years, I'm, that's a language I really don't know very well. And again, proof that the two worlds are, 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 are separating, in which which is what Boethius was trying to uh, remedy. He knew that the Romans were not going to speak much Greek in another generation, and the Greeks wouldn't speak much Latin in the next generation. But so it was necessary to bring over these essential things from the uh, Greek tradition. And he did. He succeeded. Uh, it's, an, it's an amazing success story. But yeah, he's, you're right, Mark. He really, uh, his anger is received, is, for the Romans, the so-called Roman Senate and the courtiers who uh, just stabbed him in the back, knowing he was innocent. And I will probably, Theodoric thought he was guilty, because by then Theodoric was getting paranoid, like, like the old aging gorilla. It's not important, but any theories on why they had it in for Boethius? He, uh, there was a growing feeling that as the Germans were less and less uh, tolerant of civilization, more and more people <clears throat> were thinking, gee, you know, there's still, Rome still exists in Constantinople. So uh, it's like, Imagine, imagine you're uh, an old man married to a beautiful young woman. The beautiful woman had a husband, but he died in the war. And sometimes you catch her looking out the window dreaming. And then the ex-husband shows up. And she says, well, I'm still loyal. Oh, no, I can't. That's all over. I have to be loyal to my new husband. And you look in her eye, and you see what she really wants. And I think that's, that's you know, how could any Roman fail to dream of a reunification of the empire and a restoration of civilization? They did not think the game was over at all. Nor did Justinian, 25 years later, when he invaded and conquered Italy and drove the Ostrogoths out. So they thought it was possible. Was Boethius a traitor? I don't believe it for a minute. And there's no, there's no evidence that there was any kind of conspiracy. But uh, did he think that someday the Germans would fall from power? I think so. Because they, they weren't capable of holding it. Do you think that was a common uh, belief that was held uh, maybe privately among a lot of Romans? It has to be. You know, you... Look, this is, we're, Boethius is executed 524. Mm -hmm. yes. 
The, uh, the overthrow of the last Western emperor, uh, Romulus Augustulus, took place in 476. So we're talking, it's 50 years. It's been 50 years of savagery, and yet there's still been a Roman order, and there's still officially, you know, the, it's part of the empire. And schools are still functioning, the law courts are still functioning. The Germans have their law, the Romans have their law. It's very difficult. Uh, how about this? How many, how many uh, Catholics and Evangelicals have you met who said, look, this is still a Christian country, <laughs> you know? And so we have a right to do, we all would take, we got to get the right guy elected, and we got the right people in the Supreme Court, because way down deep, this is just, you know, every, you said, well, the, the Clintons and Obama are an aberration. Well, what about George W. Bush? Oh, well, okay, well, you, there's only so much you could do. Well, what about Jack Kennedy? What about Franklin Roosevelt? Are these, you know, how far back do we have to go before you begin to realize, no, you live in a country where you are the enemy. And the answer is, how, how, how many Catholics and evangelicals accept this? Very, very few. So you could imagine when you've got something, America, uh, the ex experimented freedom, that's a little thing in world history. The, 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 the Roman Empire was a very big thing. You know, people were saying, well, how long did the empire exist? Well, the Roman state came into being, let's just say, in the 8th century B.C., and the Roman Republic in the 6th century, you know, and uh, it had been going on forever. I mean, this was just, the Roman, the Roman Empire is the way things are. Everything good. Yes? Um, one thing, one of the first arguments that philosophy takes up with, with him is his pride in his family. Yes. And, you know, we can say, oh yes, this is all quite noble and wonderful, but it must have graded upon Germans, and it's very unlikely that he wasn't parading his pride in his Roman heritage. And that, that may have also... Well, they certainly wouldn't have... You know, he came from a family tradition that went back to the Roman Republic. See, yeah. So, and whether or not there's some little fictions in here or not, I don't know. But the fact is that that is what he believed and what everybody else believed. Right. So he had, he had patrician blood. I mean, this is, this, is, this is down very few people left in the Roman, in the Roman world that can claim anything like this. But what philosophy has to tell him, she says, look, you, you know, yes, you, you, you married this wonderful girl. She's the daughter of your guardian. She's the model wife. Your, fa your father-in-law is the best of men. Your sons have had brilliant careers. All of this. But these were, yet, you, you know, you earned some of this. Hard work, intelligence, you earned but. some of this. But fortune has also given this to you. And with what fortune gives with one hand and takes away with the other. If you're going to exult in the gifts of fortune, whether it's good looks, wealth, good family, you're going to be miserable because it, it will come to an end. You get good health. My, my poor sister had 
was not sick. She was sick maybe two days of her life until she was 19 or 20 and she had her first baby and they gave her the wrong blood and she was sick the rest of her life. Okay. But I mean, she had, you know, bang. Within a day, she changed from being, because I, I was always sickly as a child. You know, so, yes, I had the measles. I had whooping cough. I had everything you could get. My sister never got anything. So, well, what fortune gives, fortune takes away. And so what, what philosophy, one of the first tasks of philosophy is to say, yeah, you've had a good run. You've had wealth, wealth, family, power. You've got everything in your hands. And so what? None of that is really in your hands because some, some goofball, oversized German who doesn't bathe very often can take it away from you and right. he can kill you. He can kill everybody. So what counts that? Well, what counts is what's in your own hands. And what is in your own hands? Well, doing the right thing for the right reason. Virtue is in your own hands. The only way at, and you can be free is to be virtuous. I have worn my, I have exhausted myself trying to explain to young people that it doesn't matter how rich the Clintons get or how successful Rahm Emanuel and Barack Obama are because they are chumps, essentially. That is, they are wicked people who have no control over their passions, and they can, be, they can be the richest and most powerful people in the world, but they can't control themselves. And so nothing is, not even their own, their own life, their own character, their own goals and desires, they don't set anything. They are, they are like sharks. They smell blood, and they, go, and they, they, come, they close in and eat the swimmer. Is the shark superior to the swimmer? No. So that's philosophy's first argument to show that every, you know, going down the line, everything, your, you know, even your learning, your social position, everything. There's nothing good that fortune gives you that fortune can't take away. What's important is what's in your own hands. Do we all agree that this is true? Yes. I don't think so. Boethius did. Boethius did, Plato did, Aristotle did, Cicero did, even if he didn't act like it. Uh, you know, all, all, it is, I remember when I started reading Marcus Aurelius when I was about 14 or 15, and it was very unsettling to a boy that age, because what, I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not supposed to seek worldly success, I'm not supposed to chase after good-looking girls, I mean, this, is, this seemed wrong. And so uh, when I read Nietzsche, what, what a relief! Thank goodness I can now I can now give way to my my basest passions. <laughs> but uh, the the early training in in the Stoics and in Plato uh, uh, helped. Clearly, you know, and again in this book, Boethius, although a fervent Christian, is not writing as a Christian. He is a Christian writing a book of philosophy. Therefore, he can't say, well, you know, think of what our Lord tells us. Think of what his... No, that's off... All those Christian arguments based on scripture and authority, they're off the table because he's a philosopher. And, you know, this has led people to say, well, 
he obviously has repudiated Christianity, or maybe he never was one. No, no, it's a question of the form. He's a philosopher. Well, that would only be true if his philosophy and Christian belief were mutually exclusive. Exactly. Which is a, an assumption that's often made in, with no yeah. basis. Yeah, exactly. Classical philosophy was adopted by the church. It was incorporated into Christianity, and things that didn't work were, were of course, pushed aside. But, you know, it, to adopt Plato and Plotinus and Aristotle didn't take much effort. I mean, you didn't... Yes, Aristotle and Plato both believed the universe had always existed, which is contrary to what Christianity teaches. And even, even you know, Boethius deals with this in the last book, and he says, well, suppose they're true, what of it? Now, he's not saying it is true. He said, well, let's bracket this question. But suppose the universe did exist forever. What, is that, what bearing does it have on our argument? And he shows that on purely secular philosophical terms, he makes his case, which is a Christian case. But it, it, is a, it, makes, it, a, it makes it a very complicated book because, you know, he's a Christian, but he refuses to write with the authority of Revelation. Whereas Thomas Aquinas writes most of his stuff, you know, as a purely rational philosopher. But Thomas says explicitly, I'm not a philosopher because, you know, I accept that God created the universe out of nothing, that he, that he sent his son who was crucified and died for us and has given us eternal life. Thomas accepts that, and he says you can't subject that to rational inquiry. But... Um, and so that's what Father Barber made the point at one of our meetings. That's why Thomas always calls Aristotle the philosopher. Not just because he's the most important philosopher, but because that distinguishes himself from Thomas, who is a theologian, who, because he has to accept these revealed truths. But Boethius is doing something more, is doing something different. He's writing as a Christian, but he's saying, I bracket all that as the, that's what a sort of Stoic term. They call it the epoche. I, I set aside in in brackets the uh, the question, yeah. and I'm going to write pure. I'm going to show you that on purely philosophical terms, the Christian case is right about how to live. I like <clears throat> if I might quote from this. Yeah, from, please uh, do. Uh, what I particularly like is. Have ye no good of your own implanted within you, that you seek your good in things external and separate? Yeah. Look inside your own virtues. That's where the that's, right. that's where uh, the reality of goodness is. Would Would you go into the the idea of God is goodness and seeking seeking God is goodness or seeking goodness yeah. is godly? Yeah. The. Uh, the notion of what, you know, if you start with uh, either the Jewish God or the Greek gods, you can get some fairly primitive notions, you know. <clears throat> the Jewish God is all-powerful, all he has to fight with other gods, and, you know, he's vindictive and vengeful, and it's sometimes difficult to understand. Now, the Jews were, were grappling with this. It's, it's not that their God was deficient, it's that their understanding was deficient. But it's the, the Homeric gods, you know, they've got lust, vengeance, all of these things on their mind. And there was a, a critique of this developed in the Greek world. Uh, Xenophanes of Colophon says, you know, if uh, the Thracians have gods with red hair, 
The, uh, the Ethiopians have kinky haired gods with snub noses and dark skin. And, and he said, you know, if, if uh, foxes had gods, they'd look like foxes. <laughs> so, I mean, in other words, this anthro you know, anthropomorphic, we, we project on the divine uh, our own feelings. Gradually, uh, there came, in fact, the next generation after Xenophanes, logical arguments coming from especially Parmenides and, and that tradition that, uh, well, what is real? What is real? What is real is that there, the, the ultimate reality is that there is no plurality. Everything is one. Hence, the, by the way, the, the emphasis on unity all through, you know, throughout the, yes. these middle books of Boethius, God is one. Doesn't mean that he, that that Boethius is not a trinitarian. He's accepting this 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 monism. There's, the re reality is one. It doesn't change. It doesn't move. It's not. It doesn't have moods. Now Parmenides didn't quite know <laughs> what he was getting at because he said, "This is the universe, and I know there's change and passion and division, but it's an illusion. The world we live in is illusory." <coughs> So what Parmenides did is drive a wedge into our understanding. That is, on the one hand, there's the world we live in with there's change and passion and evil. On the other hand, there's the world of perfection, what he called being, that which is. And that which is, is perfect. And it is all good and, and undivided and not subject to any anything that would diminish its goodness. And this is what, this is what Socrates and Plato and Aristotle take up. So they're the object, it, it prob, you know, it's probably that, that uh, uh, the name, the best guess is that what Aristotle called the book we call the metaphysics was the theology. Because it's an account of, it's a, an attempt to account for the absolute goodness which is at the, at the origin and the, the, the basis for meaning in the universe. So this, this perfect, unchanging, undivided goodness is God. And this is the tradition of Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus. There are lesser goods. There are very high goods that, that emanate from this, but they are lesser and they keep lesser. You know, we, we say we call them angels because some angels might fall. God will not fall. And below, eight, there, there are, there are. It's a hierarchical universe, but at, but holding it all together is the absolute goodness which is unified. So that to the extent, I don't want to get Neoplatonic about it, but the, to the extent that we are fully human, realizing what it is to be human, we have, we have, and cherish and preserve our awareness, our knowledge, our connection with this absolute good. We can do that through prayer. We can do it through virtuous living. We can do it through contemplation. There are all sorts of, but, but the, the, the techniques may vary. But the object of leading a perfectly human life is to cultivate ourselves so that we are in touch with that absolute goodness. And when we fail, if we fail really radically by becoming angry dictators killing people, we become less than human. We become subhuman. And so to be truly human, 
at one point, you know, he says in, in maybe book five, you know, or book four, the perfectly virtuous person is a god. Now he's he he, he doesn't mean by that anything that a post-Christian would mean or a magician would mean. He would he's talking in rational terms. We you cultivate the divinity in you until which is given to you by God, which is our soul. <laughs> When, when I read that, I, I got a touch of, uh, uh, who are the builders, the uh, the masons? Yes, that's right. You know, that's right. that you can make yourself the perfect person. That's right. Or the, that's right. You make and yourself it's, into yeah, God. And, it, and it's not any of that. It's, it's just, me, in other words, he would say that a, a Christian saint is, from the pagan's point of view, godlike. Because remember, the word God is a little dodgy. Because we, you know, we believe there's one God, that's it. Well, <clears throat> what would a pagan say about the arch archangel Gabriel? Well, it's God's God. Well, what about my, well, that's God too. I mean, all the angels would be gods. Well, what about saints? Well, they're lesser gods, you know, because uh, they're dead. They're married. She's a God. I mean, they would regard, and so in, in, he's writing as if, you know, in, in these terms. And so, yes, so we become like Hercules, you know, because we have cultivated this divine spark and are in union with our Father. But it's otherwise, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a little off-putting. Uh, uh, his readers understood it perfectly. Yeah. Should we take a break? Yes. Yeah, okay. Brief break. Normally, we don't take these. We, had, we did Homer and we did, uh, we did Trollope's The Warden. We take... Start up. Well, here we are. Shall we, before going on to the question of relevance, does anybody want to talk about the problem of free will? <coughs> well, yes. It's yes. tricky, but I, I would like to have his explanation. How can God be a all-knowing, omniscient? Yeah. And uh, and not reduce our lives to meaninglessness. Yes, right. om omniscient and omnicompetent. Yes, it's a. It's obviously, you know, it's interesting. He saves it to the last, but it is a very important part of his argument because on it depends. Sh why should we bother doing any kind of life? Why should we bother to have systems of, you know, of uh, of justice? Um. Let's look at it a little bit. He says, um, <laughs> Yeah, he says, um, even though things, future things be foreseen because they shall be, yet they do not come to pass because they are foreseen. In other words, the, the, he's taking up the argument, which every, you've heard since you were a sophomore in high school. That is, if God knows everything in advance, then we can't have free will because he caught, you know, if he knows, right. then there is a necessity which compels us to do these things. I saw a, uh, I started to watch a really dumb movie, and it was terrible. It's like made a year or two ago in which a group of uh, dissolute young people realized that a dead neighbor had a camera that took pictures of tomorrow. 
so that, uh, and it took pictures of their apartment tomorrow. So that meant that they could uh, get pictures, they figured out a way of getting pictures of tomorrow's race results, you know, and started making yes, money. Exactly. And, and uh, because if things, are, if, if you know things have happened tomorrow, then they have, they have to happen. So, uh, Boethius had a series of answers, and, you know, and I'm not going to sit here and try to outline all of them. There, there are a couple of levels of answer. The two most important seem to me, uh, one has to do with the nature of knowledge, mm -hmm. and the other has to do with the nature of time. The first argument is that, well, when you know, when, a, when an observer knows something, does he know it because of the nature of what he's observing or is it from his own consciousness? Because if, if say, forget God for a moment, let's say if I were a, 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 a future, futurist or a, ment, a prophet, when I observe things, does my knowledge of what's going to happen, does this come from the things themselves, or does it come from me? And Boethius' answer is knowledge comes from the knower, not from the known. The known is passive. <coughs> so, considering the nature of God, when God sees things, his comprehensive knowledge has, does not derive from the things themselves or from material necessity that makes those things happen. He knows, independent of, you know, of uh, any laws of necessity that make them happen. And he, he uses, and so therefore free will is perfectly consistent with this. He uses the example I'll finish this for just, he uses the example of you observe a man walking and you observe the sun rising. Now, in the case of the sun rising, that's rising out of the, the laws of the universe. That's a necessity. <clears throat> the man walking is because he felt like going out for a walk and getting a breath of fresh air. The free will is involved. You observe both of them. You know that both are taking place. But it's two, it's different kinds of knowledge. So the creator's knowledge of the natural world and of all the laws that he's put into it, that's one thing. Those are laws of necessity. His knowledge <coughs> of humanity is a, is, is a knowledge which, which is of things that have free will. And by the way, this, is, this is, goes to the heart of Aristotle, who always distinguishes between forms of knowledge and art and study that have to do with ina the inanimate world and those that have to do with human beings that have free will. It's just, and, and if I may paraphrase Aristotle, there's no such thing as social science because you cannot treat human life, uh, uh, which involves volition scientifically, you could, in, in, in an abstract way. You could treat the human body that way but you can't treat things involving the human mind or art or society. You could treat it systematically and logically and rationally, but you can't draw up the rules. And so 
this 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 is parallel to what Boethius is arguing here. Question. Well, we'll bring it back to you know our Lord's on dying on the cross, and there's reports he said, "Why have you forsaken me?" Now. Well, first of all, it's a quotation from the Psalms. Okay, but nonetheless, I would like to think, and I brought up earlier to both of you that this Botticelli painting in the Uffizi, where the devils are waiting over the cross and the angels are waiting, and it's as if there is a possibility at the very last minute he could curse God and die, so to speak. There is certainly the existential, there's certainly the possibility in the sense that Christ has free will. He exactly, that's he, what I mean. He, comes he, anything, to free he can do anything he wants to do. Right. And also, I do believe that there are Catholic theologians, including the brother of a friend of ours, who <laughs> overemphasizes the, the, the divinity of Christ to the point that, you know, like for example, the temptation, because, well, he was testing Satan. Satan wasn't testing him. Uh, no, 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 that, no, that no, is just it's below. No, right. Okay. Jesus is fully human and fully God. Right. This is the In mystery. The way none of us is. Yeah, but yes. but the point is that like us, he is fully human. He hungers, he thirsts, he feels pain. If right. he didn't hunger thir and thirst and feel pain, then this is all just a joke, right? And so the Gnostics who said... He was really standing by in the form of a snake laughing at the poor chump on the cross who he had substituted. Well, they're, they're, they're logically right if you take that point of view. No, as a human being, he suffered. As a human being, he was ignorant. Mm -hmm. On the one, as God, he knew everything. As human, he knew nothing. So it's a mystery. I'm not going to pretend to say exactly, well, in what sense is, does he have knowledge or inf in, uh, infallible knowledge on the one hand or ignorance on the other. This is not, this is not uh, up, for, up to us to know. We just have to accept this reality. So, yes, and so the devils wouldn't know. No. Hence, the, that, that is the point. You know, when the devil tests Jesus in the wilderness, uh, you know, they say temptation, Oh, the temptation of Christ. Like they were dangling candy and women in front of him and he was going, Oh, just give me some. No, this is this is not what it means. It's it's the putting it the word is the word you use to, to like assay a metal. What is this thing made of? What is he? Satan wanted to find out who and what he was, hence the series of tests he's given in the temptation. And he goes away unhappy. But so, so let us suppose there were any validity to the Botticelli painting, and I'm not sure there is, but, but if there were, the point is the, the devils don't know because they don't have perfect knowledge. They have some knowledge, right. but they don't have perfect knowledge. Same with the angels. Same yeah. with the angels. Yeah, the yeah. angels have less. Who are on the other exactly, side there. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Who as powerful as, as they are are still creatures. Yes. Exactly. Precisely. Precisely. The, the other thing about that psalm quote is it's, it's a form of a Jewish prayer. It yes. starts out as a lamentation, yes. right. exactly. but ends in, in hope in yeah. God. Yes. In hope in God, right. It correctly expresses what we should feel at that moment, you know, and, that, and yet it leads to the, the triumphant con conclusion. Yeah. So, uh, ab ab absolutely. So, 
That, I'm just very crudely summarizing one line of argument, which is the question of knowledge. And the fact that, the, the cre that God has knowledge does not mean that it is that the knowledge comes from the nature of the things and that they are therefore uh, manipulated by material necessity. Because in human things, as Aristotle insists over and over, we are, are free. And so this pre-knowledge does not have anything to do with our ability, our freedom to make decisions. And so one of the conclusions which uh, Boethius draws is it's right to punish criminals because they deserve it because they made, they made their decisions. This is really important stuff, especially when you have idiotic things like some of the statements in the, in the catechism or worse things stated by uh, certain officials of the church in recent years, which would lead you to doubt that, they, you know, that we have, because if, if we're not to be held responsible, if we're not to be punished for our crimes, then, uh, then you know, the, the, the universe makes no sense. This, but, but this goes back to Boethius' earlier argument, which he borrows from Plato in the Gorgias, that the wicked can only be happy if they're punished. They're better off as they're being punished because they're beginning to wise up. All right? Mm. So, would you say that, what would you say then about somebody who said, oh, well, yes, he killed all his children and he murdered a bunch of people, but we can't be too judgmental and hard. I forgive him. him. Well, this he is, he uh, killed my daughter, but yeah. I forgive right. him. Right. Yeah. Exactly. speaks to the, the essential issue of uh, illegal immigration. Mm -hmm. what, what you mm -hmm. do not hear in the public square is the fact that it is against the law. Yes, yes. It is, yeah, yeah right. Somehow that's... You have to punish more. crimes. And and uh, in in the uh, and so you know, you're not going to find Boethius facing execution. You know, facing execution, he is saying yes, we need criminal justice systems that that punish people because it's if you're guilty, it's it's it it, it begins to bring you back into sync with God. If you're innocent. Then it's begin <laughs> you're, you're learning a valuable lesson. It's beginning to detach you from the things you don't need to be so connected. This reminds me of, uh, of the license plate <clears throat> of a long since gone uh, Rock Valley College English faculty member who, in my estimation, was <clears throat> um, Marxist in her thinking. And her lights uh, on her car, the rear of her car, <clears throat> to the upper left of the license plate, she had this sticker, "Screw guilt." Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Ah. Well, obviously, you know when I, when uh, when I believed what everybody told me that any one of us was capable of committing any crime, and I believed this when I was say 15, 16, 17 years old. And you hear this all the time. Well, yes. they're but for they're but for grace, go you. Yeah. You know, they're but for fortune, says sings Phil Oaks, go you or I. Well, no. Most of us are not capable of murdering little children. Most of us, yes, you could kill in defense of your own children, but that's something totally different. 
So, but when you get over that, you realize, yes, I want to live in a system, in a, under a system, that if I committed a terrible crime, they would execute me. I accept that. Okay, let, let's finish up on this uh, thing, and then we can get to uh, Professor Scarpacci's uh, uh, quest for relevance. The, uh, and that is, I realized in rereading uh, Book 5 today, that um, I had borrowed much of my worldview from, uh, from uh, Boethius without remembering it. Because Boethius' answer is, okay, look, for, uh, for, for the, the knowledge and power of God is that uh, God's knowledge is different from our knowledge. And he, and he says, look, God is eternal. He says, well, if, you're, if you accept Plato and Aristotle, which, by the way, Christians do not on this point, if you accept Plato and Aristotle, the universe is eternal uh, because uh, they, don't, they don't believe in the creation as Nihilo. And uh, Aristotle said, just on balance, it seems less likely that, 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 the, that the universe has a beginning seems less likely than the contrary hypothesis that, it's always, that what is always has been. And uh, so Boethius, for the sake of argument, you know, because this is a philosophical work, not a theological tractate, for the sake of argument, he says, okay, suppose they're true. He doesn't say it's true, but he says, suppose it's true. What do we deduce from that? He said, does this mean that God is coterminous with the universe, that they both came into existence together? Well, no, it does not mean that. And he says, it doesn't go into the problem of, well, if the, exist, the universe had existed forever, then when, when, when did God exist, uh, uh, apart from it? But he, he just doesn't take that out. But he said, well, look, there's a difference between the eternity of God and the perpetuity of the universe. And perpetuity, the, perpe the universe is perpetual because it has no beginning and no end. But it is still sequenced, A, B, C, D, E, F, to the, in to the end of time. From the beginning to the end, things happen in sequence. So there's a sequence of time. <clears throat> Whether it's clock time or what, what uh, Henri Bergson called dur dur durative time, the, the organic time that we experience. And he said, God's not like that. For him, uh, now I'm giving you my really dumbed-down version, God doesn't experience time. God is outside of time. He is eternal not because he, there's no beginning and no end, like the Aristotelian universe. He's eternal because, all time, because time means nothing to him. Time and space are irrelevant. He has perfect knowledge of all time and space. So his, his knowledge of the future is not knowledge of the future for him. And, and Boethius makes this explicit. What we seem to think we know in the present, he knows the future and the past. Because he's, he's he has never not been, and there is no past for him and no future. So he has total knowledge of everything going on. So it's not like it, it's not like he's pre not only not predicting the future; he's not controlling events. He's simply present in all of it and aware of all of it. 
So this makes the whole sophomoric question of, well, if he knows everything and control everything, then how do we have free will? It just blows it off the page. I've been making this argument for 20 years, and I've forgotten, <coughs> I've forgotten where I got it from. Huh. I stole it from Boethius. He, uh, he defines, he says, eternity is the possession of endless life, whole and perfect, at a single moment. Mm-hmm. Exactly. How brilliant. How incredibly brilliant. Because God lives in an eternal present. We live in our present, which is the only thing we have. But for him, the the whole universe at all time is present. With respect to uh, free will, uh, in Book 5, Prose 2, I may just read this short passage. I have listened carefully and agree that chance is as you say, but within this series of connected causes, does our will have any freedom, or are the motions of human souls also bound by the fatal chain? There is free will, philosophy answer, and no rational nature can exist which does not have it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We, if we don't have it, we, we, lose, we lose our approach to divinity, and we sink. He says, just as very virtuous people rise above being human, wicked people, by giving up their rationality, sink below and become beasts. And by the very Aristotelian uh, uh, understanding, um, Any, um, any, um, Professor Scarpacci had, had, uh, some questions about relevance. Well, I was, um, uh, I peppered this, uh, copy with sticky notes because, uh, page after page I kept thinking about the contemporary relevance of things and even, <clears throat> uh, even as, a man of the theater, I found that even early on in book one, under prose one, uh, there's a section in which uh, philosophy, when she saw the muses of poetry oh, yeah. standing beside my bed and consoling me with their words, she was momentarily upset and glared at them with burning <laughs> eyes. Who let these whores from the theater come to the bedside of the sick man? And I was thinking about how it is that, that people often refer to those who are involved in theater as theater gypsies. Yes, yes. <laughs> whores of theater. The thing is, one, you know, Augustine has some terrible things in the city of God to say, you know, these, uh, we respect these pagans. Well, eh, their theater is nothing but lewd, lascivious performances. You know, like it's like like they're strip shows. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if Augustine. I know Augustine had read uh, probably a schoolboy selection of Greek tragedies. That would be about thirty or something like that, at least. But he says, well, yes, they have that kind of literature. But then the god, their gods are full of stupid irrationality. He's being incredibly unfair. But, but but it's important to remember that when when um, 
most Greeks and Romans went to the theater in late antiquity. It was to see mime performances, and they're sometimes having speaking, but you know, it's like a Broadway show, pretty girls, lots of dancing, lots of hoochie-cooch. And so they're not thinking of somebody putting on the Oresteia or the Sophocles Oedipus. They're thinking more in terms of uh, cats. <laughs> I remember Russell Kirk once came to Rockford to give a lecture, and uh, and he said, mm, uh, and he said, mm, you know, I went, I was in London, and uh, you know, my, uh, as you know, my my great friend T. S. Eliot wrote a, wrote a book called uh, Apostles' Book of Practical Cats. And right. They put on a, uh, <laughs> they put on a musical of these sensuous, sinuous women with, with. Clinging, cl and, and, and as Russell got more and more hit up of thinking of these beautiful girls in Cats, well, um, I haven't seen it, so I don't know how attractive they were on the <coughs> London stage, but... Um, well, how excited are you about something that's dressed like a cat? Obviously, Russell was. All right. Women Yeah, he was. He was disapproving. He was disapproving, <laughs> but grudgingly disapproving. <laughs> so my point is that 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 they that you we're not talking about the kind of uh, raunchy stuff they put on the uh, the the Broadway stage now, but still the kind of things that Boethius is condemning is not Sophocles and Euripides. What he's condemning is uh, is uh, you know these kind of these mind performances or scant. Can we assume that none of these have survived? We have very little. We have quotations. We have allusions. But even even some of the farces and things like there's there's some really bizarre things. Like there was a guy I don't remember his name, but in the late Republic, it was a Roman. It was either a knight or a senator, and he wrote these things and. And and was performed among his friends, and he was a gentleman. And uh, Julius Caesar invited him to perform in a public place, and this was felt no, a Roman aristocrat does not do this. But the guy cheerfully did it to make Caesar happy. Oh. And this has been sometimes performed. This has been portrayed as an act of despotism. It's been portrayed as an act of depravity. I rather think this was like asking Noel Coward to put on a show for you. You know, I think it was more like that. But no, we don't. We don't have this stuff. We have. Uh, we um, we have in in uh, the Roman tradition. The latest stuff we have dramatically is basically we have these these closet dramas of Seneca. We don't know if anybody ever tried to perform them or not. <coughs> Very influential literarily throughout the ages, but I don't know that they were performed. Yeah. There was uh, another uh, passage that I found <clears throat> so universal. Uh, again, it, it, this comes from uh, Book 2, uh, Prose 6 section. Uh, it's a, it's a, a clause, actually. Nature abhors the union of contraries. Yeah. Yes. The most immediate thought I, I came to was gay marriage. Yeah. Right. Right. But the, the the universal application of that to so many contexts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah ugliness and beauty. Mm -hmm. huh. And there was even uh, a reference that reminded me of uh, that play, You Can't Take It With You. Uh, and again, this is in book three, 
uh, where, uh, see if I can find this passage for a moment here. Uh, pardon me for me. Oh, yes. Uh, poem 3. <clears throat> Though the rich man has a flowing torrent of gold, his avarice can never be fully satisfied. He may decorate his neck with oriental pearls and plow his fertile lands with a hundred oxen, but biting care will not leave him during life. And when he dies, his wealth cannot go with him. And I thought about Grandpa Vanderhoff, and you can't take it with you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You just can't take it with you. Yeah. <laughs> Tom? Yeah. I, I, I have another remark. Isn't there somewhere in Plato where he talks about opposites attracting? Attractive to each other as a male and female yes. and all that. But I don't know how to square this with what with what Boethius Well, they're not saying. they're not moral opposites. No, you know no, right. there are uh, they are. Um, um, but even there, even there, Plato's notion of unity leads to weird things. Like in the Symposium, he makes an argument. Actually, had puts it in the mouth of Aristophanes, and it's an argument I utterly reject. Which is that once upon a time, there were different types of human beings. Uh, there was the perfect human being, which was composed of two parts, male and male. Then there was a type that was female, female, and then there was the male, female type, and that's inferior. And so the male, the half male, half female, it goes through. Uh, their descendants go through life chasing members of the opposite sex, whereas the perfect type uh, is the all-male, which yeah. is more interested in men. And uh, clearly, this is uh, an Aristophanes, he puts it as a joke, but I think there's a, a profound mistake within even the joke, which is that... Um, and in, in my answer is to go back to the, uh, the, the, uh, an earlier Greek poet, Empedocles, who said, you know, the, the universal forces are love and hate, or love and strife. And love makes everything come together into one. But, you know, that doesn't make for much of a universe. You know, I mean, it's fine for the, for the Parmenidean one or God or whatever. But, you know, without strife, without opposition, then without competition... And without op, then uh, then you, it's it's a very boring place. And my even on a low level, my example is like domestic pets, and uh, the Galapagos described by uh, by Darwin. You know where where varieties of finch fill virtually every evolutionary niche. What you what you need is these two forces of attraction and repulsion working working together, holding a society together. It's How a little mystical. How family pets fit in here? Because they're bred, they're bred selectively over generation after generation oh. for certain very limited types. There's a lack of Dar Darwinian competition. So you get these, for example, Chinese dogs with flat faces that look like babies. Yep. <laughs> you know? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, obviously... This is a wee bit fanciful, although I shall present it as complete truth in the second chapter of this book. But it is a, it is still a, we. The problem with like political philosophy today or political ideology. The on the one hand, 
the capitalists emphasize raw competition is everything, and and loyalty, affection, uh, uh, and uh, charity is nothing. Whereas the Marxists say, no, 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 everything, football teams, the stock market, competition for grades in school, that's all wicked. We all have to be together. We have to have a state-imposed system of love and charity. It's all one gigantic be-in with writhing hippies endlessly copulating in the town square. And whereas I argue that, look, there's... There are institutionalized, throughout human history, there are forces of, there are institutions of competition, like the football team, and there are institutions of love, like the family. And we need, any healthy society is a, is a, is a compound of these, of these forces and institutions. Now you don't have to buy my book. Surely the fa- surely the family <laughs> is a compound too. Well, yeah, yes, life. yes, exactly. Because in any because human life being what it is, nothing is perfect or or, or, or pure. So that in human life, you've got siblings quarreling and competing, yeah. and just as in a company, well, it's my brother-in-law. You don't expect me to fire my brother-in-law, do you? I know he's no damn good. But you know he's yes. Fredo in The Godfather. Yeah. <laughs> he's my brother. The cocktail waiter says, no, he's my brother. And uh, so, yes, and, you know, so a church church congregation, a church parish is interesting. Ah. It's bound by ties of love. It's supposed to have, you know, it's supposed to be uh, above social distinctions, although we know that's rarely true. But but all all of the stuff that's supposed to work, and I'd say it works about 70%. But there's also people competing, you know, who gets to be the soprano in the, oh, the yes. lead soprano in the choir, who gets to be woman of the year, who gets to be this. So there's all this, so within the parish there's all this uh, competition for prestige. So, Who gets to be the bishop? Yeah. <laughs> Not me. I think well, when you speak of opposites attract and nature of more opposites. How, there are two if different you were to, definitions if you were to of the word opposite. Guess yes. how yes. modern because yeah. there is the textbook writer of history if he even recognized Boethius how would he describe him? How would he present him? If he were a moderate he would say you know he would say basically nice things Although he would trivialize it, if you were a ra- if you were a typical radical who writes textbooks, he'd say he didn't. Uh, he was defending an antiquated social order that oppressed women and barbarians, you know. And he uh, represented a a the religious institution that would oppress the minds of men. He doesn't. Uh, there's never been a, there hasn't been the attack on Boethius that there's been on say. Columbus or 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 yeah. Jefferson Davis, but basically they just pretty much try to ignore him, which is why, relatively of say people with college degrees in the humanities, probably not one in a hundred has actually ever you know read Boethius. They may have had a snippet of presentation of him in a in a in a general history you know, survey of civilization course, but you know he's he's a he, he, he is 
to the he is to the medieval world what Cicero was to the classical world. I mean, he is he embodies all the best qualities. Well, maybe we should stop there. What do you see? No. One one more thing. Okay. I, I get to say one thing and then we'll stop. Good. <laughs> I, I particularly like his theology in this quote in placing, like Genesis, where the relationship between God and man, and he says, <clears throat> in like manner is it that human reason thinks that divine intelligence cannot see the future, except after the fashion in which its own knowledge is obtained. Yeah. So you know, we have we only have our own minds, yes, that's and right. trying right. to envision what the divine mind is is really is quite beyond us. We conjecture on the basis of reason and evidence, whereas the divine mind understands yeah. and understands everything. Yeah.